DiscerningHearts.com presents a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University and has dedicated many years of extensive ministry to retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching on the spiritual life. He's also the author of several books on the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is featured on the EWTN series, Living the Discerning Life. Father Gallagher is also featured in several series produced by EWTN, including Living the Discerning Life. A Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Father Gallagher. Thank you again, Chris. We're discussing the Lord of the Rings, and in particular, this incredible area of joy, which seems to be a constant place, even in the course of struggles within the story. And becomes the the source of the strength that leads them forward. In so many ways, look at the friendship between Mary and Pippin, and even between Sam and Frodo. Sam speaks of Frodo as his master. He's there as his servant. He's younger, you know, a number of years younger than than uh, Frodo. So he'll speak of him as Mr. Frodo or master. But something much deeper than a relationship of simply master and servant obviously holds between the two of them. There's a deep, deep love and friendship between them. In so many ways, friendship becomes the motivating force that gives them courage and sustains them along the journey. Well, Let's look at another theme of joy in The Lord of the Rings. And this is delight in the beauties of nature. Tolkien was remarkably alive to this. I want to read a few sentences, just a a paragraph from three different letters of Tolkien to his son Christopher. These were written during the war. And uh, he's just a father writing to his son. This is not planned out. This is not carefully crafted prose. But he's a remarkable writer. All right. In this letter, he says, A lovely morning dawned on us this morn, a mist like early September with a pearl-buttoned sun that soon changed into serene blue with the silver light of spring on flower and leaf. Leaves are out, the white-gray of the quince, the gray-green of young apple, the full green of hawthorn, the tassels of flower, even on the sluggard poplars. The narcissuses are a marvelous show, but the grass grows so quick that I feel like a barber faced with a never-ending queue. <laughs> a lot of a lot of mowing to do, but just a lovely a lovely awareness. He's just looked at this scene outside and can describe the different colors, the mist, the sun, the different shades, the gray green, the full green, the white gray of the different flowers. Obviously, a man who delights in the beauties of nature and is very alive to them. And not too much later in another letter. Here I am at the best end of the day again, the most marvelous sunset I have seen for years, a remote pale green-blue sea just above the horizon and above it a towering shore of bank upon bank of flaming cherubim of golden fire, crossed here and there by misty blurs like purple rain may pretend some celestial merriment in the morn as the glass is rising, which is remarkable prose for a letter just tossed off like that, and remarkable love and sensitivity to nature. 
But of these three quotes, this next one is the one that I think I'd say surpasses even the others. The weather has been for me one of the chief events of Christmas. It froze hard with a heavy fog, and so we have had displays of hoarfrost such as I only remember once in Oxford before. One of the most lovely events of northern nature. We woke late on St. Stephen's Day, the day after Christmas, to find all our windows opaque, painted over with frost patterns, and outside a dim, silent, misty world, all white, but with a light jewelry of rhyme. So there's the tracings of frost on the on the windows, a light jewelry of rhyme. Every cobweb, a little lace net, even the old fowl's tent, though they had some, some hens, a diamond pattern pavilion. When a gleam of sun, about eleven, got through, it was breathtakingly beautiful. Trees like motion, motionless fountains of white branching spray against a golden light, probably above all, in terms of the beauties of nature, Tolkien loved trees. Trees are everywhere in the Lord of the Rings. Just delight in the goodness and beauty of trees. Trees like motionless fountains of white branching spray with the ice on the branches against a golden light and high overhead a pale translucent blue. It did not melt. About 11 p.m. the fog cleared and a high round moon lit the whole scene with a deadly white light, a vision of some other world or time. It was so still that I stood in the garden hatless and uncloaked without a shiver, though there must have been many degrees of frost. And we can just image Tolkien. It's 11 at night, cold out on a winter's and December day in winter, and delighting so much in the beauty of the scene around him, lit with the white light of the moon, that he simply stands there, even without his hat, without a coat, just delighting in the beauty around him. Now, that delight in that beauty in nature runs through the entirety of the Lord of the Rings. Let's look at a passage late in the Fellowship of the Ring. When the, the Fellowship, after they've escaped from Moria, have just entered Lothlorien and are invited by Haldir, the elf who is accompanying them at one point, to climb up a tree and to view the beauty of the scene around them. So Haldir had gone on and was now climbing the high to the high flat, that's the dwelling high up in the tree. As Frodo prepared to follow him, he laid his hand upon the tree beside the ladder. Never before had he been so suddenly and so keenly aware of the feel and texture of a tree's skin and of the life within it. He felt a delight in wood and the touch of it, neither as a forester nor as a carpenter who use it for various practical goals. It was the delight of the living tree itself. And that's really Tolkien speaking about himself, just a delight in trees, aware of the feel and texture of a tree's skin and of the life within it. It was the delight of the living tree in itself. When they reach another forest, which is Fanghorn, Pippin and uh, Mary, having escaped from the from the orcs and having encountered Treebeard, they sit now at Treebeard's dwelling, and Treebeard begins to talk about the elder days because Treebeard is the eldest. He was there in the first age, at the beginning, and he remembers how Fanghorn, which is still a large forest, at, at that time was just on the edge of a much greater forest, which covered an enormous 
space in Middle Earth. Those were the broad days. Time was when I could walk and sing all day and hear no more than the echo of my own voice in the hollow hills. The woods were like the woods of Lothlorien, only thicker, younger, stronger. And the smell of the air. I used to spend a week just breathing. What a remarkable thing. And the smell of the air. I used to spend a week just breathing. What if we could be aware of the beauties that God has built into creation around us and desires that we enjoy and by which we be uplifted and strengthened? The smell of the air. I used to spend a week just breathing. Now, of course, the ant's uh, pattern of life is much slower than ours, but it's the it's the the wonder and the delight, just in the woods, the trees, the atmosphere, the air. When I was growing up, my dad was an artist, um, a pretty good painter. He used to give painting lessons and so on, and painted a number of things. Many of them would be uh, outdoor scenes. We went on a couple occasions to art shows, and I always remember we went to. Uh, an art show down in, this was in New York, I think. Uh, it was a, sh- a show of El Greco paintings. And it was really unforgettable to view those paintings together with my dad and to have them, to see them through the eyes of an artist. I remember how he pointed out to us what El Greco does with clouds. He gets a kind of gray, almost metallic quality in his clouds. So you look at them and you say, well, is that really true to nature. And then you start looking at clouds in nature and you find out that that El Greco has revealed something to you that you never saw but was there in the clouds and you delight in it. And something similar when we went to another art show in Washington, it was a um, Monet. And again, just an enormous number of his paintings, these impressionistic, beautiful paintings. And I remember one of them, we were looking at one of his fields, and my dad pointing out to us how Monet was so aware of the different shades of color. We tend to just look and see all we see is a field. But Monet had the artist's eye, and he would see the different shades of greens and reds and yellows and so on in the different plants in a field and would depict them in his paintings. And I know ever since then, when I look at fields, I tend to see them through those eyes. And it's delightful to have had an artist reveal to me beauties in nature that I would have never seen otherwise. Tolkien has that kind of eye. And Tolkien also has done that for me in a number of ways. I'll just mention one of them. And this is in The the Return of the King. And it's at the fields of, well, just before the fields of Cornwall and uh, with great joy, they will celebrate the conclusion of the quest. But this is when Sam awakens. He's been, uh, he and Frodo have been snatched from death at the Mount of Doom by the eagles and have been brought back to the land of Athelion. And there they are recuperating. And Sam finally awakens. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. But over him gently swayed wide beechen bows, And through their young leaves, sunlight glimmered, green and gold. All the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. The the detail that really catches my attention here is Tolkien's depiction of the sunlight shining through the leaves of these beech trees in early spring. And as the sunlight shines through the leaves, they glimmer with a mixture of green and gold. And... 
since reading that description from him, I've seen that now many times in nature and delight in it and delight in the fact that Tolkien has made me aware of it. It's a beautiful thing, which you'll see at times as sunlight shines through the green of, of the leaves on these trees and you get that green gold effect, which is simply beautiful and simply uplifting and lovely. And Tolkien was very alive to these things, as I say, throughout all of nature, but in a special way with regard to trees that he, he loved very deeply, just simply in themselves, Eden. We'll return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help Discerning Hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. You described that moment about how he just took a week to breathe. Mm -hmm. And 
That, in a very compelling way, describes the contemplative experience, doesn't it? Where if you can quiet yourself down enough just to even be thankful for the gift of being able to receive the gift of air in in our life, because when you stop and you take that time to just even focus in on the fact that you're breathing, that can be quite an encounter, can it? Mm. St. Bonaventure said that God spoke to us through two books. One was the book of the scriptures and the other was the book of nature. And if we enter in that contemplative way into nature, we're going to be lifted up toward God. I think with all the confusion, philosophical confusion that is there in our culture today, this is one thing that remains very strong because it's so deeply built into us and that's a love for nature and a desire to preserve nature and a desire simply to be out with nature and to enjoy it. However consciously, what's drawing us there finally is the creator of that nature, the the, the complete source of the beauty which is poured out partially but in beautiful ways and rich ways upon us through God's creation. So that there's something very rich about it, something very beautiful about it. If we are willing to be contemplative, I remember watching the documentary on the French Carthusian monks into great silence, which is a very slow film, uh, consciously so, but a very a very rich film. And what happens as you watch it, with the help of the eye of the camera, you become aware of things in nature that you would never ever see by living life at our habitual pressured pace. So at one point, a storm is beginning to approach the monastery and the thunder rumbles and you see the holy water font and the camera focuses in on the water in the holy water font. It's on a pedestal. It has a round space on top with the where the water is. And you see the slight ripples in the water. Uh, corresponding to the rumbling and the shaking of the earth with the thunder. Just beautiful things that you'd never ever seen, you'd never ever see or notice without the willingness to to slow down and to become contemplative. It's one thing that the church says in a number of documents here or there. John Paul II said this, and of course he gave this witness himself that vacations can be a time of being with nature in this way. You remember how he would always go off to the mountains for his vacations, you'd see him hiking and so on uh, through woods or, or snow. He loved nature that way. And he invited us, when we have leisure time, to try to do that, to be contemplative with regard to nature. If we do that, we start reading in one of the two books which allow us to approach God. So yes, the contemplative response to nature is a very beautiful and very rich thing in our lives. Now we spoke a little bit earlier to harken back to the theme of friendship. I want to focus now on a moment which, like so many things in our human experience, is a mixture of both joy and sorrow. Most deeply joy, but joy mixed with a certain sorrow that is blessed. This is one of the moments that Tolkien tells us in his letters that that moved him the most when he would go back years later to the Lord of the Rings, the time came when he says he could almost read it as though it had been written by somebody else. There were enough distance, was enough different distance of years. And this is one of the moments, the parting from Lothlorien. 
And Gimli has discovered where he expected enmity. He has discovered great friendship in Lady Galadriel and is deeply pierced and deeply struck and drawn to the nobility, the goodness, and the beauty, and the friendship of this noble figure, the elf woman Galadriel. And they have just parted. Remember how Galadriel gives gifts to each of the members of the fellowship, and when she comes to Gimli, asks him what gift he would desire, and somewhat haltingly, he expresses what he does desire, and that would be a single strand of her hair. And the, the elves all murmur in astonishment with that request. And she tells him, none have ever made to me a request so bold and yet so courteous. But tell me, what would you do with such a gift? Treasure it, lady, he answered, in memory of your words to me at our first meeting. And if I ever return to the smithies of my home, it shall be set in imperishable crystal to be an heirloom of my house and a pledge of goodwill between the mountain, the dwarves, and the wood, the elves, until the end of days. And Lady Galadriel, uh, just very beautifully, she unbraids one of her long tresses and cuts not one but three of her golden hairs and gives them to Gimli. And now Gimli and Legolas are in the boat. They have uh, just turned away from Lothlorien and into the great river, the Anduin, which will take them down toward Mordor. The travelers now turned their faces to the journey. The sun was before them, and their eyes were dazzled, for all were filled with tears. Gimli wept openly. I have looked the last upon that which was the fairest, he said to Legolas, his companion. Henceforth I will call nothing fair unless it be her gift. He put his hand to his breast. Tell me, Legolas, why did I come on this quest? Little did I know where the chief peril lay. Truly Elrond spoke, saying that we could not foresee what we might meet upon our road. Torment in the dark was the danger that I feared, and it did not hold me back. But I would not have come had I known the danger of light and joy. Now I have taken my worst wound in this parting, even if I were to go this night straight to the Dark Lord. Alas for Gimli, son of Gloin. In all of my own reading of literature, I've never found a better expression of this special human experience. I'm sure it's there in literature, but in my own reading, this is the, um, the deepest expression of it I've ever seen. Gimli has encountered love, and it's not you know, obvious romantic love of any kind here. It's, it, it's a deep, deep welling up of love in his heart for the friendship that he sees in Galadriel, the goodwill toward him, and the healing of, of enmity and wounds that have been there for so long. And now he has to leave. And I think what, Kandal, what uh, Tolkien describes so well here is the experience that we, probably most of us have had, maybe all of us, times when we have encountered deep love or deep friendship and deep beauty in relationship with another person or persons, and then for one reason or another, because we have to move or that person has to move or life must simply go forward to its next stage, we have to part from that. And we feel just what Gimli feels here, the danger of light and joy and the tears in his eyes. He would not trade this for anything, the, the, the beauty that he's experienced here. And he has 
Well, let's read what uh, Legolas tries to respond to Gimli. Nay, said Legolas, alas for us all, and for all that walk the world in these after days, for such is the way of it, of the world, to find and to lose, as it seems to those whose boat is on the running stream. But I count you blessed, Gimli son of Gloin, for your loss you suffer of your own free will, and you might have chosen otherwise. But you have not forsaken your companions, and the least reward that you shall have is that the memory of Lothlorien shall remain ever clear and unstained in your heart, and it shall neither fade nor grow stale. To his own great credit, Gimli has not tried to selfishly cling to the beauty that he's found here, but when the, the task requires him to go forward, he has said yes to it. But his heart feels the pull both ways, the, um, what he calls the danger of light and joy, the uh, discovery of the beauty and the sorrow when he cannot simply remain there where he discovered it. I don't know how well I'm describing this, but I think any one of us who has experienced this knows immediately what Tolkien is describing here. We would never want to be without that joy, even at the price of that sorrow. Tolkien says a number of times that there is a point at which joy and sorrow mingle and become one. And this is one of the experiences. But there's a beauty in them that we would never want to be without. So here I'm not really trying to explain anything. Uh, In reading Tolkien's words, I'm just putting forward a description of a human experience, of a deep joy that finally will be fulfilled without any sorrow, without any loss in the afterlife. But we catch glimpses of that kind of joy at times in this life, and we rightfully treasure them. And Gimli experiences something of this um, at this point in The Lord of the Rings, faithfully going forward on the journey. Let's move from there now to another experience of awakening and a casting off of darkness and hopelessness and an opening to light. And this is in the Two Towers, and it's the point in the Hall of King Theoden when Gandalf uh, casts aside Wormtongue, who is the really the voice of the, of the, the enemy, deceiving and sapping the energies of the king who is reduced to sitting hunched over on a seat in a darkened hall, helpless. And and Gandalf awakens him, invites him to to rise from his chair and to walk through the, the dark hall which he does with faltering steps and taking the arm of Eowyn. And then they come to the great doors at the entrance to the hall. Open, he cried, Gandalf says. Open, he cried, the Lord of the Mark comes forth. The doors rolled back and a keen air came whistling in. A wind was blowing on the hill. Now, Lord, said Gandalf, look out upon your land. Breathe the free air again. From the porch upon the top of the high terrace, They could see beyond the stream the green fields of Rohan fading into distant gray. So the great panorama of the grass-covered fields of Rohan in the distant mountains opens before the king. Curtains of wind-blown rain were slanting down. The sky above and to the west was still dark with thunder, and lightning far away flickered among the tops of the hidden hills. Suddenly, through a rent in the clouds behind them, a shaft of sun stabbed down. 
The falling showers gleamed like silver, and far away the river glittered like a shimmering glass. It is not so dark here, said Theoden. And that's the beautiful thing. Yes, there is darkness in the world, but it is not as dark as, as Theoden fears. And when he actually rises up and, and goes out to face his land and the task before him, discovers with a lifting of his heart that things are not as dark as he'd feared. No, said Gandalf, nor does age lie so heavily on your shoulders as some would have you think. Cast aside your prop. From the king's hand the black staff fell clattering on the stones. He drew himself up slowly as a man that is stiff from long bending over some dull toil. Now tall and straight he stood, and his eyes were blue as he looked into the opening sky. Dark have been my dreams of late, he said, but I feel as one new awakened. And so we can listen to the voices of discouragement. We can see in some cases, very real reasons for perceiving darkness in the world. But yet, when we are willing to stand up and cast aside the discouraging words of our spiritual enemy, the evil one, and to open our eyes to the task that lies before us in the world, we discover, as Theoden does here, that it is not as dark as we thought. And that thought itself awakens hope within us. During the 27 years of the pontificate of Pope John Paul II, I experienced something like that because I found that I could easily look at the world, the situation of the church in the first world, all that's happening in the younger generations, and so many things in the world around us, and things could seem heavy. And here was this pope who consistently seeing everything that I saw and knowing it far better, far more deeply than I, consistently spoke of hope, of a new springtime, a new evangelization. And I, like so many others, you remember the uh, title of the biography, Witness to Hope, that that's exactly what John Paul II was. It, it began to dawn on me that you can look at everything in the world like the Holy Father was doing, seeing it all very really, not trying to avoid any of it, facing all of it objectively, and you can do it with hope. You can find out that it's not as dark as we fear. And that very hope, which ultimately is centered upon God and the redemption and the presence of the Lord in the world and guiding history, that very hope, as with Theoden, helps us to set aside tiredness and discouragement, helps us like Theoden to stand tall and straight. His eyes were blue as he looked into the dark opening sky. Dark have been my dreams of late but I feel as one new awakened. That's a, a beautiful experience of hope, and it's something that can become very real in our experience as well. Actually, along those lines, in the very darkest point of the struggle of the city of Minas Tirith, the, as the battle before the walls of the city is about to begin, Gandalf arrives th there with Pippin, and they have that... A session with Lord Denethor, in which with Gandalf watching, Denethor probes Pippin at length with questions about the the journey of the fellowship and his son. Pippin does his best, but it's in a very difficult situation um, for him. And when that has finished, Gandalf and Pippin 
are led to the house where they're going to be staying. They walk through the, the large room of the house and to the wall and the window in which they can look out now over the field where the battle will, will begin shortly and see in the distance the river. And the darkness of Mordor is already shrouding everything. And there in what seems almost hopeless as overwhelming forces are approaching to take the city, Gandalf and Pippin look out through the window. Are you angry with me, Gandalf? He said as their guide went out and closed the door. I did the best I could. You did indeed, said Gandalf, laughing suddenly. And he came and stood beside Pippin, putting his arm around the hobbit's shoulders and gazing out of the window. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face... He saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though, as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. And I find that a, a beautiful moment in The Lord of the Rings, when everything is dark and the worst is about to happen, Gandalf can laugh. Yes, there are lines of care and sorrow in his face, and that's what one first sees looking at his face. But as Pippin looks more intently, he, he understands and sees that underneath all the care and sorrow is a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. I think of Holy Thursday evening when the worst is about to happen to the Lord Jesus in just a few hours the passion will begin with the agony in the garden and all that will lead to the crucifixion the next day, Good Friday. And remarkably, Jesus, as, as he speaks at length with his disciples in the upper room, remarkably says to them in John 15, I have said these things to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That's the deepest reality always in the heart of Jesus and as Pope Paul VI explores this in his document on Christian joy, he explains that the deep source of the unshakable and constant joy that underlies everything in Jesus is the love with which he knows himself to be loved by the Father and the love with which he loves the Father in return. And that's the Christian reality. Whatever the sorrows and the struggles, and they're so apparent, like Pippin looking at Gandalf's face, that's what you first see. You see the signs of the sorrow and the care. But looking more deep, more deeply, there is a level of joy that no sorrow or care can ever shake. And for us too, it's rooted, as John Paul II said so often, it's rooted in the redemption. In that classic sentence in his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, he says that this is the reason why we have no fear, because the power of the cross and resurrection of Christ, that's the redemption, the power of the cross and resurrection of Christ is greater than any evil we can or should fear, which is a beautiful thing. There are evils we can fear and there are evils we should fear, but we know that there is a power in the world greater than any of them, a light that shines in the darkness and which the darkness has not overcome, and that is the redemption which is present through every age of the world. It's a beautiful thing to see that, that right when everything would seem to speak only of sorrow and trouble and care and worry, Pippin marvels to see the deep, deep joy that underlies everything in Gandalf. 
and is available on that deep level to every disciple of the Lord Jesus. I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. There's still so much more to explore in The Lord of the Rings, but in this episode, any final thoughts, Father Gallagher? Just to return again to know that the deepest truth of the world, the deepest truth of the gospel, is good news. And that's the deepest truth of our lives. There is sorrow and there are cares, as we've just seen in the passage we've quoted, but the deepest reality is happy. And we'll, we'll return to this in another conversation, but I think this is the deepest reason, however consciously, why we, we love the Lord of the Rings, because we sense that finally the truth of the world is good news, and that's our hope. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Father Gallagher. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. 